from 2 Samuel chapter 11. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning. You guys thought I was going to say you are the man, didn't you? Yeah, I was going to, but I changed it up. And here's the reason. I'm going to do a little bit of a different angle this week on this, uh, than I've ever preached on this topic, this text before. Last week, if you were here, we talked about the uh, intersection between David and Bathsheba. How's that? And we discussed how the mighty fall, and boy, did David fall hard and fast. Faster than ticket sales in the NFL. Betrayal, I mean, it's all there, man. It's like, a, it's like a soap opera. Betrayal and sex and conspiracy and murder. Man, it's this gritty, gritty stuff. And if you weren't here last week, very briefly, uh, by way of reminder, David's army was out in the field fighting the battle where he should have been as the king of the Jews. But rather, David's home on his, sleeping on his couch until four in the afternoon when he decides to go for a stroll. And it just so happened that Bathsheba just happened to be there bathing. And boy, just a mere coincidence, he called her in. They intersected and blammo. She has a baby. Coincidence, right? No. To go back and look at it, he sent for her. They interfaced. And she became pregnant. And then David, you know, he's a, he's a politician, man. He knows how to do this. He, he tries to cover his tracks, and finally, when he can't undo the mistake by pinning it on her husband, he uh, orchestrates the murder of her husband, a guy named Uriah the Hittite. And if you weren't here last week and you want to do the, the pre-sermon uh, from last week, it's on the website and on our podcast. Point is, David has crashed and burned adultery, conspiracy, and murder. And you'll remember last week when I said we talked about how the mighty fall, and in this case, fall hard and fast. It was for two reasons. One, that David underestimated his own sin, like we do. And secondly, that David underestimated God's mercy. That's what caused his fall, that he underestimated his own sin, and he also underestimated his own, God's mercy and took matters into his own, own hands. Well, today, we're going to see the undoing. Last week we saw David's fall, and this week we see how Jesus saved him. So there are two points, and they're the exact opposite of what I preached last week. Point number one, that David, in fact, recognizes his own sin. And secondly, David rejoices in the mercy of God. You with me? It's a little mini-series. It's good stuff. All right, so um, if you remember last week, the story cuts off right with David ordering the death of Uriah the Hittite, and there doesn't seem to be any sense of remorse or pity or even regret on David's part. Crash and burn, he gets rid of Uriah, problem solved. And you read it, and if you're like me, it's a little bit creepy. It's a little creepy, and here's why. Because we, certainly I, want David to be this sort of sociopathic, murdering, fire-breathing knuckle-dragger, right? Like a Joseph Stalin type. A person who has no qualms about using murder and violence to succeed in their own political ambitions. That's what we want. I want a David that I can point at and say, that guy's a filthy animal. Nothing like me. 
We want an evil, wicked villain. Because then we can all say, well, I'm just not quite that bad, am I? <laughs> but here's the thing. We don't get that option. Because David, you see, is not. David is not a monster. What he does is terrible, but he's not a monster. On the contrary, if you've been reading about, we've been reading about David all summer. David's actually a pretty good guy. Man, people love that dude. He's a rock star. He's a leader. He's faithful. He loves Jesus. He's a, God, he's a good leader. He's brave. He's compassionate. People follow him. I mean, for crying out loud, the dude is a true Renaissance man. He's a military leader. He's, a, he's strong. He's compassionate. He even plays a harp, for crying out loud. What psychopath plays a harp? <laughs> My point is, you see, no matter how much we want to pigeonhole him, David does not fit the profile of a cold-blooded killer. David, you see, is any man. David is any woman. Sadly, friends, he's just like you and me, God knows. I mentioned this point last week. I'm not going to belabor it. But given the right set of circumstances, we are all, including me, capable of horrible evil. I mean, think about it in your own life. How many times have you been in a bad mood or whatever, had a bad morning, and the kids just frustrate you, or somebody says something, and you, you just let loose, man, right on your kids or your wife or one of your friends, and what you said to them was cruel, and you meant it to be cruel. You knew it was wrong, and you did it anyway. And then you later on say to yourself, my God, how in the world could I have said such a thing? I didn't mean it. You can apologize, you can try to reel that back in, but you can never really take it back, can you? You know why? Because you and I are capable of tremendous evil, given the right set of circumstances. You and I are just like David. It does no good, it does no good, friends, to read the story of David and his fall, and to see him as a moral failure, which he was, by the way, but to leave it there does you and I no good, because what the point of text here is that unless you see your own reflection in his mirror, this story will not help you. But I also want you to see something else, that God saves him, and therefore you and me. And here's how God saves him. So God sends a guy named Nathan. Nathan is a prophet. Prophets are people that hear from God directly. They're God's messengers, actually. Nathan is a prophet. He's kind of like Samuel, right? Samuel, the prophet that has been there all along, that anointed David king of the Jews. Nathan's the same thing. He's a prophet. He gets a word from the Lord and tells it like it is. Samuel's like that too. Problem is Samuel's dead. So there's not much help, right? Um, but Nathan is a prophet that's, verse 1, sent by God. He's on a mission to go to David to call David, listen, to repentance, to call him to repentance. That's what prophets always do. If you look at prophets throughout all the scriptures, they, all they do is call other people's, people to stop what you're doing and change direction. You know, sort of segue or side note here, you hear a lot of people in the church today talking about the church being prophetic, right? And it usually comes with some sort of progressive agenda, right? Gay marriage, open communion, that Jesus is just one God among many gods. We're being prophetic. Nonsense. All prophets, every single one, the real ones, are anything but progressive. In fact, 
they are always calling people or nations or you and I back. Because to repent means simply this. The word metanoia in Greek, it's not really a, it's not a judgmental word. It's a word which means you're going this way, and man, if you don't stop, you're going off that cliff. And so repent is like this. Come back. Come back. I'm warning you in love. Come back. That's what prophets do. Whether it's Samuel or Isaiah or Nathan or even John the Baptist. The call of the prophet is always the same. Repent. Metanoia. Come back. Stop what you're doing. Come back, off the, uh, come back onto the road from which you have strayed before you hurt somebody or yourself or somebody else. And the reason I'm saying that all to you and kind of belaboring this point is because repentance, friends, is not, listen, repentance is not a call of condemnation, but of love. To call someone to repentance is not a condemnation, but a call of love, a warning. Nathan's goal for David is that David would acknowledge his sin, recognize what he had done wrong, and repent of it to be saved from his sins. So how does Nathan do it? Well, it's actually pretty clever. Um, you know, first of all, Nathan is a prophet. Being a prophet is always a dangerous job. No one likes to be told what to do, whether you're David or Joseph Stalin or me. I don't like it, neither of you. No one enjoys being called out. And, and, and Nathan also knows that David, if he gets frustrated enough with Nathan's call, David will just do what he's always done, which is just have him whacked, right? He's done it before. What's to stop David from solving the problem of a guilty conscience by killing the messenger? Nothing. So Nathan says, I'm going to try a different tack. And this is important. Rather than, go at Nathan, not, rather than Nathan going at David directly, you filthy animal, Nathan uses a story. And it's a fictitious story. It's a story about a man, two men. A man arrives from, on a journey. The Jews, if somebody arrived as a stranger, had this radical hospitality. He would just serve them a meal. And so there's a rich man who's got all these herds of flocks of sheep and another guy who's got one, one sheep only that he treats like a child. This sheep sleeps with him and eats with him. It's kind of weird. It's a pet sheep, I guess. I don't know. Never thought of having a pet sheep, but this guy has a pet sheep, and the rich man, rather than taking somebody from, a sheep from his own herd to feed the stranger, the rich man, because he can, takes the poor man's sheep, kills it, and serves it. Instead of killing his own sheep for dinner, the rich man takes what does not belong to him. David is outraged. Go back and look at it again. It's fascinating the way he does it. David is outraged. That man should die. And Nathan says, you are the man. In other words, Nathan uses David's own sense of justice. By the way, stealing, uh, killing someone's lamb is not punishable by death, by the way. Adultery and murder are. Nathan uses David's own sense of justice to convict him of his own sin. It's brilliant. I'm going to read uh, words from a commentator named Robert Bergman in his commentary on 2 Samuel. I don't normally read these verbatim, but this was so good, i got to give it to you. He writes this, David has condemned himself and suddenly has to come to terms with his own verdict, passed upon the rich man, but now unerringly applied to himself. You know something, friends? I'm going to say this. Everybody needs 
a Nathan. Everybody needs a Nathan. Every single one of us, including the man standing in this box preaching at you right now, is really good at justifying our own actions, of convincing ourselves that God really doesn't care about, you know, fill in favorite sin in the blank. God doesn't care about that. Nah, it's fine. That's really dangerous. It's toxic. We create our own misery because we become entrapped in our thinking. Paul refers to sin as being slaves to it. It rules us. It owns us. I mean, how many people do you know who wrestle with the besetting sin? Including the person sitting in your chair right now. Too much drinking, too much spending, too much internet, too much gossip, too much foul language, too much neglecting our prayers, too much skipping church, too much TikTok, too much cheering for the Ohio Buckeyes. That's not really a sin. Well, yeah, it is if you're a Penn State fan. But my point is, you guys know this, left unchecked, these things become habitual. They seep into our DNA. They become part of our identity. We become slaves to them, you see. Remember what I said last week about sin, that sin is a parasite. It latches onto the host and eventually kills it. Scripture says this very thing. For the wages, the result of sin, is death. Romans 6.23, which is precisely why, friends, everybody needs a Nathan, someone who can come alongside us and challenge us to change, not in condemnation, you see, but in love. Let me give you an example, and it'll make perfect sense. How many of you have kids or grandkids, right? Um, and if not, you've seen it done, or at least you had parents at one point. So either way, you get, you get my point here. You know, children get themselves, our kids get themselves into all kinds of trouble. I don't care how old you are, I don't care how old, but they get themselves into all kinds of trouble, not just teenagers. And as a parent, as a parent, listen, you don't criticize your children to crush them, unless you are some kind of a monster. You criticize your kids' behavior because you love them. You want them to change for the better. You want them to stop doing what they're doing and do the right thing. You want them to repent. Seriously, idea. Nathan's intention is to bring David to a state of repentance, not because he doesn't love David, but because he does. Friends, everybody needs a Nathan. Here's a question for you. Has God ever placed a Nathan in your life? Well, let me ask you a question. You ever hear a sermon and you say to yourself, man, that preacher's talking right to me. Ever happened to you? Happened to me before. Guess what? That's not true, actually. But I will say this. God speaks to you through sermons that are biblical and preached. That's a Nathan moment. Don't miss it. Maybe God, maybe, maybe God has spoken to you through somebody who's come to you and called you out on a sin in love that you had no idea had affected them. That's a Nathan moment. Don't miss it. Maybe God has placed you in someone else's life to be their Nathan for them. That's not easy to do. To challenge them, to call them to repentance, to restore their relationship with God or with whomever they've hurt. Everybody, friends, needs a Nathan. And, then, and one, there's lots of ways to do this, but one way to do it which is always effective is kind of like what Nathan does here. Rather than coming at somebody and attacking them, which never works, 
You say something like this. You know, Bill, when you did this, this is how I felt. You know, when you did that, you caused these things to happen. You didn't mean to do it, but you did it. Friends, everybody needs a Nathan. You need a Nathan. I need a Nathan. The people that are around you need you to be a Nathan for them, to help them to see the blind spots. That's my first point, that David, through Nathan's ministry to him in love, recognizes his own sin. And then secondly, David rejoices in the mercy and the goodness of God. You know, you may not know this, um, but the Psalms in in Scripture are written almost entirely by David. Same dude, right? Yeah, he's a murderer and a soldier. He's also a poet. Go figure. He played the harp. He's a singer. And Psalm 51, which you guys just kicked out of the park. It was awesome. Three singers make that thing sound just beautiful. Psalm 51, which the choir just sang a moment ago, so beautifully, so beautifully. That is a psalm written by David at this exact moment when Nathan came to him and called him out. David later on reflected on this and wrote Psalm 51. I'll quote one verse for you. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, because of. Because of your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David appeals to God's mercy because David knows he cannot save himself. And then David goes on as the psalm goes through. It's a progression of thought, but as, as the psalm goes through, verse 17, which is one of my favorite verses in the entire Psalter, is this. David says, the sacrifices, I love this, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's an absolutely astounding thing to say. Because what God really wants from us, friends, is a broken and contrite heart. It doesn't mean somebody who feels bad about themselves and guilt-ridden. No, it means somebody who goes, what have I done, Lord? You've got to help me. A broken spirit is a spirit that recognizes it needs to be fixed. What God really wants from us, you see, is, well, us. What God really wants from us is our repentance, turning back to him, because God can really only do his work on us when we put down our dukes and when we come to him and say, Lord, heal me. This is the sacrifice of God, a spirit spirit poured out to him. Why? Because, friends, God wants to save us from ourselves. You know, the only sin that God cannot forgive, you see, is the one that you hang on to. Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus, what does he do? He doesn't cry out for mercy. All the apostles betrayed Jesus. But Judas kills himself. Why? He took matters into his own hands. Judas was prideful. He did not have a broken and contrite heart. The only sin that God cannot forgive, you see, is the one that you hang on to more than you hang on to him. We'll see in the the weeks to come that there will be consequences to David's decisions. David's life begins a downward spiral because of his own actions. His kids turn on him. It's a long, we'll see. It's not pretty, but it's true. We cause ourselves a lot of suffering. But Nathan tells David, stay with me, I'm almost done here. This is the key to the whole thing. 
Nathan says to David, David, man, you blew it. You really, you really blew it. But, he says, you shall not die. Listen to that. You shall not die for this. And remember, the Old Testament penalty for murder is what? Death. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? It's called lex talionis. It's just. Nathan says to David, David, you have murdered this man in a conspiratorial way. You've committed adultery, but you will not die. Verse 13, the Lord has put away your sin, David. Well, let me ask you a question. Is that fair? How can Nathan say, you shall not die? Does does David just get a free pass because he's the king? Does David just get a free pass because he's a good songwriter? Well, no, actually. There's more to it, and this is the important part. There is another king of the Jews, a son of David. His name is Jesus, which means God saves. And just as Nathan said to David in his guilt, David, you are the man. If you know the story, Pontius Pilate puts Jesus on the stand, an innocent man, on trial, and says, Ecce homo, behold the man. Same words. The difference is, you see, David was guilty. Jesus was not. The key here, friends, is that David did not die for his sin, you see, because Jesus did. Jesus takes the penalty for David's sin upon his own shoulders and pays for that on the cross and pays for mine and yours on the cross. That is where redemption comes from. That is why David shall not die eternally but shall live. Jesus takes these sins on his sinless body and pays for them on the cross so that we shall not be separated in hell from God forever. But instead, friends, we can live lives like David of repentance and forgiveness and confidence and joy and freedom and peace because Jesus died for David and Jesus died even for me and you. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for Nathan who you, who you put, the Nathans who you put in our lives, Lord. Those who love us so much they are willing to risk to call us back to you. Give us the courage to listen to those Nathans in our lives. Give us the courage to be a Nathan for others. Remind us that even in our failures, even in our brokenness, even in our sin, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise because Jesus died for me. In his name we pray. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.